Welcome everyone to Exploring Optimal Health with Gregory Van Den Bolt. This is the podcast where I'm taking you on a journey towards exploring optimal health and biohacking. Why exploring? Because it means we're on a path towards constantly seeking ways to improve our well-being while staying curious and having an open mind. If you're eager to discovering how to live an optimal and meaningful life, this is the podcast you've been looking for. Today, I'm with Dr. Rand McLean, world leader in longevity therapies and innovative anti-aging solutions, such as hormone replacement therapy, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, stem cell therapies, and much more. He's also the author of the new book, Cheating Death, The New Science of Living Longer and Better, coming out March 7th. Dr. McLean, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, I would like to uh, congratulate you on the new book that you've written, the Cheating Debt, which we're going to talk about elaborately today as well. I had the joy to read it as a preparation of this interview, and uh, the book is so extensive. I think it's an encyclopedia of biohacking and health optimization, and I really would like to recognize you for, for the work you've done there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It hasn't been released yet. So to get some feedback early on, uh, I guess it's too late, but it's nice to hear your review so far. Thank you. I would like to start off with the question about how you got into biohacking and health optimization uh, yourself and how it brought to you uh, writing this book eventually. That's an easy one. I, I always say I, I fell into this for my own uh, purposes initially because I had so many issues that uh, cropped up during my athletic career. Um, I think I chose my parents fairly well, but I think I probably also pushed things a little bit farther than I should have. So a lot of the things I've learned have been, you know, out of necessity for me. Although I tell everyone the story that when I was younger, about 11 years old, um, I was fortunate enough to have parents that provided us a, a, a library. We had some books that they purchased for us, an encyclopedia, but also uh, my mother was very much into nutrition before people really even thought about what they ate. Uh, my mom's um, in her mid eighties now, and uh, I, I consider her a pioneer, but she had a book by Adele Davis uh, with regard to, to health and nutrition. And I was fascinated by the fact that you could control aspects of your health with what you ate and certain supplements. So that I think was the impetus uh, for my interest. And then as I started to get some of these injuries, I said, well, let me research some of these things and see what works and, and what doesn't for uh, my own good. And, and eventually I ended up, um, I hope I'm helping you know other people with what I learned sometimes the hard way. It's great to hear a little bit of context about your story and how it got you into write, writing this book. It's uh, always great to have inspiring people around you. And I think uh, uh, your mom will be incredibly pr proud to see what you've uh, put on the table here. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm also very proud to, to have my mom, you know, being where she was, uh, sort of a pioneer in all this beforehand. It, I, I used to hate the fact that she would serve me uh, pancakes made with wheat germ and we weren't allowed to use syrup or anything like that as a sweetener. But I thank her many, many times over now for, for being that way with us because uh, it helped us build a nice base and she was ahead of her, ahead of her time. Definitely, definitely she was. Uh, the, the first part of the book is called Regenerating Bodies and uh, Rethinking Aging. I would like to ask the question how you would define uh, aging, and especially in the context of uh, chronological age versus biological age. Well, in the book, I list the, what are considered the nine hallmarks of aging, and it's very subjective, you could argue, 
I don't think we pin down exactly what aging is. Uh, there's different definitions for it. There's different uh, markers that we use, you know, uh, biological aging markers, we call them sometimes. And so and it's understandable because our lifespan is uh, arguably so long compared to a lot of other species. And anyway, we, we've got to go through some iterations, some generations before we can say, oh, yeah, look, we have the data. Um, if we're going to do this properly to show, okay, this is definitely a good arbiter of biological age versus, uh, you know, chronological age, et cetera. But in general, I think a, an easy definition uh, is, or one I, I like is with centenarians, the people have the, that have lived the longest so far, it looks like they don't dodge the bullets of aging like everybody else, it seems that they just postpone them till later in life, whether it's a decade, two or three decades longer, they still get atherosclerotic plaque formation, they still get diabetes, but they don't do so as early as some of us or the most of us really. And I think that's a big clue uh, to start with, with aging, but the mechanisms behind that are, are, are very interesting. And, and of course, the, the, the markers we use, I think the most reliable to date is probably uh, DNA methylation, uh, the telomere length is important and useful, but uh, there's some caveats there because uh, cancer can have the desired long telomeres that we want to see. So there's uh, some uh, uh, qualitative as well as quantitative analysis is involved there. But, uh, you know, we can go we, we could describe aging in various ways for, for you know, an hour or so at least. But uh, those are some general ways to look at it. And I would say to put it in even more context from the next level up, what, what do we want out of all this? We want to be able to last for a long time. We want longevity, but we want it with quality of life. So the term that many of us are using these days is health span. We want to improve our health span. Uh, the older uh, generation would call it squaring the curve, where you're going long, living life like you did in your 20s, and all of a sudden you die one day. Most of us would like that as long as that day where you die is well into the future, right? And, and that's what we're trying to do. We don't want to, I've never met anybody who said, hey, Rand, I'd love to live 20 years longer. Uh, can, can you shave off some of my quality of life so I can last longer in the back end? It's always the other way around where, hey, Rand, look, I don't know about this stuff you're doing here, but if you can trade five years of good quality left, I'll give up 20 on the back end. And the beauty of all this is that you don't have to make that trade. And it makes sense, common sense, which doesn't always apply in medicine. If you're eliminating the some of these disease processes that reduce the quality of life, like type 2 diabetes and coronary artery disease or any heart disease, uh, for example, you're necessarily improving your health so that you should be able to last longer, therefore. So... You know, you don't have to rob Peter to pay Paul. And that's what's exciting to me. And that's part of why I wrote the book is because there are so many avenues by which we can manipulate this stuff these days. Um, and, and not too many people know about them yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the book, you also go into detail about the telomeres and the DNA methylation as well. Uh, you actually posted something today about the hallmarks of aging, which is a fascinating topic, obviously. I would love for you to explain uh, how... Uh, telomere short telomeres affect aging and maybe also for the audience to better understand what telomeres actually are give a little context about that okay so the classic example we use are the um the, the ends of a shoelace 
Okay, that little plastic cap, there's a name for it. I always get it wrong. Epaulets or epaulets or something like that. Anyway, everyone knows that little plastic at the end of the shoelace, right? And it keeps it from fraying. Well, the idea is with with uh, telomeres, it's it's the end part of the DNA. And when the cell replicates, it it uses up a little bit of that. that, uh, We used to think it was spare DNA um, in order to enable the cell to... um, uh, divide and, and replicate. So uh, that keeps us going with fresh cells, as it were. Mm-hmm. And the problem is once you get down to uh, a short enough telomere, the, the cell has problem doing that. Okay. It has problem replicating. And so you're left with oftentimes what we call a senesce cell, a, a cell that's not functioning properly. Think of it as a, as a car that's not tuned properly and it's spewing exhaust everywhere. It's not driving properly. And just the, the the first part of that, spewing exhaust everywhere, not only can it potentially poison the driver, but other drivers around, other cells around. So we don't want senesce cells is the bottom line. And so by measuring uh, telomere length, we get an idea, okay, as to uh, both how many times the cell has had to divide and, and I guess more importantly, how many more times the cell can divide. So shorter telomere lengths, are associated with shorter lifespans and actually also poorer health. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the one caveat is that we find uh, longer telomeres in cancer cells. So uh, there's a, a particular way of analyzing this that I argue is the best way. And I think I allude to this in the book. It's uh, HTQ fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that represents, I forget, but uh, I think high throughput uh, Q fish. Fishes um, stands for something else too. But at any rate, the point being that uh, the beauty of this is they're not just taking an average length, okay? Because you could have very short cells over here that perhaps they collected you know, through the blood because those were in the liver and the liver's aging really fast, but then they have a lot of longer cells over here, uh, sorry, uh, longer telomere links over here. And that represents a good heart. And you get this average and you go, okay, well, I'm doing well for my age or whatever. And yet, no, your liver's not doing too well. So mm-hmm. the HTQ fish is uh, using a technology. Again, I'm going to apologize. I think it was Einstein who said, uh, why memorize things when you can look them up? So uh, <laughs> that's my excuse for not having the hard drive to keep all the stuff in my head. But TAT. It's the, in a book. It's in a book. For... Yeah, there you go. It's in the book. <laughs> but TAT is it's, uh, the acronym for um, uh, the technology they use where you're actually looking at not just a mean, uh, but, a, but a median. So, so you're looking at, uh, you're quantifying the number of short telomeres mm-hmm. as well as the, the longer ones. And it gives you a better flavor as to what's going on. So that's important. There's a company uh, and they don't send me a free toast or anything like that for referrals or anything, but uh, just for people who may want to go out and do this themselves, life length, it's based in Spain, but they have a headquarters here in in, um, in the United States, uh, and uh, they're the best I know at, at evaluating telomere length. I'm happy you already brought that topic up because one of my questions was how we can actually measure telomeres because that would say a lot indeed about our uh, biological age. You already mentioned the HTQ fish. Uh, you also mentioned the qPCR, which is a less expensive one, but also less accurate. Could you maybe elaborate on that a little for the, for, for the people that are oh. curious to measure their telomeres? 
and in terms of the measurement, we're, I mean, we'd love to have it be accurate, right? Mm-hmm. But I think more importantly for us at, at any, really any stage is the precision. And that's why, again, instead of just having this average, we can, we can see a, a number of short, medium, long, however you want to uh, parse it. So you have, a, again, a much better feel for what's going on rather than just QPCR, which is just an average. Okay. And it's not really as much information, right? But the beauty of having something that's at least precise is that you can see what happens when you change certain aspects of, uh, we call it activities of daily living or the supplements you take. So if if you switch from a, a shift work job and, and, and go to a, what we call a nine to five, right? A standard daytime job. And for six months you get regular sleep again. It's, I think it's invaluable to see the effect because you have this precise marker that may not get your age right. It may not actually give you a true biological age. Mm-hmm. And what that means is day two. But if it's precise enough where you see a shift, wow, I just increased my health span by three years. You go, great, I'm doing something right. And you know whether you can attribute it solely to sleep or not is open to, to discussion too. But let's say you implement you know, better sleep, you stop smoking, uh, you improve your nutrition, cut out a lot of excess processed foods and sugars, and all of a sudden you see these changes and they continue to occur. Well, the presumption is, and I think it's a very good one, that you're doing the right things for your health. Mm-hmm. And that's invaluable. You see what works and vice versa. If all of a sudden you decide, you know what, I don't believe in this stuff and you start smoking two packs a day and you see your age go, uh, well, the biological age increase, then again, it's good feedback. Mm-hmm. Then I would like to jump to the next uh, hallmark of aging, which has to do with um, the DNA methylation. So here again, could you maybe explain what DNA methylation actually is? Uh, Previously, you already mentioned that it might be a more accurate indicator compared to uh, telomeres. Yeah. So Dr. Horvath uh, came up with this idea way back when and developed some tests. uh, And this is going to date my age, but it used to be a test where I think we had to pay about uh, $10,000 to reserve one line in a tray. And I think, it, you know, each each spot would give you or each line would give you 10 spots. So you'd find 10 friends who were interested in finding out what their you know level of DNA methylation was. And each person would kick in a thousand dollars and, you know, you, you'd get some results that uh, tell us uh, there, there's a correlation and it's been tested with real age. Uh, between how much of your DNA has been methylated. So going back to maybe your high school chemistry, you remember the, the CH4 molecule? Uh, it, was, it was referred to methylation when, when that, uh, that, that CH4 molecule less a hydrogen, because you have to have room to make the bond, right, is attached to the DNA. In this case, mostly we're talking about, um, and again, I'm sorry I'm going into the weeds, but we're, we're talking about some basic stuff you know, you have these nucleotides inside the DNA. Uh, remember, um, adazine, cytosine, uh, uracil, et cetera. Anyway, um, there's four in, in DNA. And and typically we're referring to occasionally adenosine, but mostly cytosine is the area where this CH3 is attached. And it can be a good thing or a bad thing, okay? It's not like, oh, boy, you've got all this methylation here. It's actually part of our our normal processing to be able to turn on, or in this case, typically you're, you're turning off a gene when you're methylating it. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but, um, and there's certain areas and now we're really getting in the weeds, but there's certain areas where processes occur and you can be hyper or hypomethylated and either one could be a good or a bad thing, but in general, okay. Um, well, I don't want to generalize beyond that. So, uh, what we're doing when we're, when we're doing these methylate methylation, uh, tests is we're seeing, okay, this area is, is hypermethylated. That's not a good thing. This area is hypomethylated that's not a good thing either and we're correlating what we've seen in lots and lots of data accumulated and the correlation with with our chronological age and then from there we can you know if there's more or less of it we can say well you're ahead of the game or behind the game in terms of your biological age mm -hmm. does that make sense so to kind of summarize it, and for my own understanding as well, it not, it's not necessarily the, the methylation, which is either good or bad for the DNA, but it's, it's either the under-methylation or the hyper or, or the over-methylation, which depends on the, the certain way a, D, a DNA or gene is expressed? Yeah, and, and so, yeah, the, so we're looking at the epigenetic modulation that occurs with these attachments or lack thereof because we're manipulating the genes so we all have these genes but if they're activated or not uh, uh is a determinant of you know how they're expressed in other words or how how the cell operates which uh determines you know whether or not um you're going to get better say uh building muscle mass or not and you know so so and this is what's so fascinating and actually really cool about the way the body works you can modulate your genes you could have the potential because of the way you chose your parents and grandparents to be you know as big as arnold schwarzenegger this is just a silly example right um but you never work out you don't go to the gym so we don't see you as big as as arnold schwarzenegger mm -hmm. but through the epigenetic modulation the things that you do namely go and work out with weights you know uh in a in an intense manner uh, eat properly and get enough rest, you turn on those genes by, mm -hmm. you know, part of this process, again, we're, we're talking about uh, the, the methyl methylating the genes so that all of a sudden they're working for you. They're activated so that you can put all that muscle uh, that you didn't know you had the genes for. Hope that's a, that's an mm -hmm. oversimplified example, but yeah, it, it gets to the point I'm going to make. Yeah. And the, these methylation cycles, they also require specific nutrients, right? Like uh, folate and, vit and uh, B12 in particular. Correct. I mean, it's funny you mentioned folate. Yeah, uh, because, yeah, those were the uh, MTHR, M MTHFR um, mutations, whether they're homozygous or heterozygous, they can have issues, right? So, you know, they, they want to find sources of, of uh, folate that are, you know, have been modulated differently so they can be absorbed and utilized. Uh, is that the reason you're bringing it up or is that just a random guess? I have a follow-up question because I was talking about folate and B12. My follow-up question would be, what would be the, the, the types of food that we would need to in, uh, ingest to, I'm not going to say improve the methylation cycle, but enhance it? So remember, that. so when you say enhance it, uh, we, we want to... We want to improve our DNA methylation profile, I guess, is, is maybe what you're asking. So it's funny because uh, the same old things that your great, great grandmother probably told you still apply. And this is the hardest part of my job, I'll admit, not that you care, but I have to tell people the same old things. OK, 
the basics still count. You have to get seven to nine hours of good quality sleep, meaning not snoring or being awakened by the neighbor's dog two or three times during the night. You have to get regular exercise. You got to move, okay? And you have to eat nutritiously. On top of that, you also have to avoid the negative things like smoking, uh, drinking uh, excessively, meaning alcoholic beverages, uh, stress, stress kills. Uh, there's no doubt that, for example, telomeres are uh, very, we'll say, aware of stress. So your telomeres uh, or, or will definitely uh, shorten, uh, correlated with, uh, you know, greater uh, stress, which is beyond normal. We, we call it you stress is normal stress. Like you're doing everything right and you go to the gym and you push yourself for an hour and you come home. That's good for you. Mm -hmm. But if you're working three jobs and uh, you've got six kids at home and, uh, you know, the three jobs is only covering four of them and, and not but half the mortgage. Well, you've got stress that would actually make that working out maybe too much stress. So instead of an hour, you might be better off with a half an hour. So stress is additive. And by the way, as a side note, it's not just about how you perceive it. It's helpful if you perceive things with less stress, meaning you say, well, I'm used to this. I can manage and I'm doing well, but there is a physiological limit. Just like to, to make it very clear, you can only run so fast, right? Per mile, no matter how you perceive that as easy or hard, there is a limit. And there is there are limits with stress too. And it's reflected in your uh, telomeres and, and their length. And, and of course, and we're talking about, you know, your DNA uh, methylation profile as well. So I wish, well, and, and there are some things you can do to, I guess the word these days is hack this beyond the basics, but, uh, you know, supplements, taking some of the good ingredients from nutrition, um, like polyphenols and antioxidants. So, you know, your curcumin uh, derived from turmeric and your, your vitamin C, let's say, from an outside source. These are things that you can add to your regimen. Very basic, simple things uh, that may help you protect your DNA methylation profile for the long term. Mm -hmm. I really like how you emphasize the lifestyle uh, aspect over the specific nutrient question that I was uh, aiming for. But I totally uh, agree with that perspective, like taking the, the, the whole picture, the bigger picture. I also uh, recognize the obviously the point about stress indeed uh, stress can be good hermetic stresses we've all heard about it going to the sauna or the gym um, but it's different than that the stress that you were talking about obviously i only can uh, can echo that well and, and to your point further i mean there are things that you can do to compensate you might call it um, but you're still not as well off as you are fine-tuning or leveraging the basics. For example, if you're smoking and drinking every night and only getting four hours of sleep, then all the vitamin C and curcumin, the two things I mentioned before in the world, are not going to make up for that. You know, mm -hmm. they will they they can help you, but you're still fighting a losing battle if you don't have the basics in place. I think that's what you're you're mm -hmm. you're mentioning that I'm emphasizing. I'm just saying it a different way too. Yeah. Yeah. One last question about uh, DNA methylation. How can we measure it? Well, I like to use uh, the, the, the test that's been credited to, to Horvath, and that's widely available now. Um, there's companies like in, in the U.S., Elysium. Uh, you can order a, a kit online, which uses the same methodology 
I think they've gotten the price down considerably from when I was first doing this uh, with my uh, associate, uh, Robert Harding. Um, so you, you can, uh, you can get, I think, boy, I don't, I hesitate to even say this, but for a couple hundred dollars, maybe, uh, through some of these companies, um, you can get a, a fairly, uh, precise measurement of DNA methylation and then track it. Right. Like we talked about earlier, every six months, maybe every year to see, okay, am I doing the right things or not? Mm -hmm. To close off the part one of the book, which is regenerating bodies and rethinking aging. We talked about the telomeres and the DNA methylation for the telomeres. The, the, the most accurate test would be the HTQ fish test. And then for the DNA methylation, the one from uh, Elysium health. Well, it's based on, yeah, the Horvath model of testing Horvath DNA. Model. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then there's different companies. I just mentioned Elysium because I'm, I'm aware of them. Yeah. Okay. I would like to jump to a part two of uh, uh, the book, which is Aging with a Regenerative Advantage, where you talk about stem cell therapy. Maybe you could give like a stem cell therapy 101 masterclass on what it actually is and how it can uh, improve your health from a preventative approach. Yeah, no, I love it. So stem cells are one of my favorites because uh, I had a patient and I can tell you his name because it's all been made public, David Lyons. Uh, and he was patient zero, you know, the first patient at uh, American Cryostem, with whom I'm, I'm associated. Uh, they are a, public, a publicly held company that processes stem cells. And my patient came in from his trip to the Caymans and told me that his multiple sclerosis had improved. He had mainly left-sided issues. And he said, my vision's improved. My gait is improved. Uh, it's phenomenal. And I got on the phone with the CEO of uh, American Cryostem that day. His name is John uh, Arnone, and I've been associated with him ever since. I just said, hey, whatever you need, whatever I have to do, I want to participate because back, you know, and this was back in 2011, I believe, in, in my world, in my uh, scope of knowledge, I thought it was all pretty much uh, science fiction. We knew about stem cell transplants, right, for treatments for leukemia, for example, but to be able to manipulate other things with it, to, to regenerate tissue and improve on things like multiple sclerosis, that I hadn't heard of. So that got me hooked. And then uh, since then, with ups and downs because of different uh, views by the FDA on what's uh, um, allowable or not, we've had great success essentially reversing to one degree or another, the degeneration that occurs, you know, referred to as entropy from just living on the planet longer, right? Uh, exacerbated more or less by, you know, how much you uh, uh, drive yourself beyond the capacity, right? So, for example, to use instead of multiple sclerosis, uh, let's say a shoulder joint, if you're mm -hmm. a, a professional baseball pitcher, well, you're degenerating that shoulder probably a lot faster than you and I. Mm -hmm. And so, Stem cells can be used either proactively, which I think you mentioned earlier, to prevent that degeneration or not prevent it, but slow it down or even reverse it in some cases temporarily, because it really comes down to a balance of degeneration versus regeneration. If you can stay ahead of it with stem cells, well, that prevents the ultimate you know, shoulder replacement, let's say. And that's that's the key. The problem uh, that we have is, and I'm harping on what you said about being proactive, is that oftentimes we wait until we feel the issue. 
And that I think is where with more knowledge of stem cells out there, we're going to, we're going to start implementing their use much earlier before there's any issue. For example, with brake pads in a car, right? You typically don't think about it until they start squeaking. Well, by then, you know, you, you, it's too late. You're risking metal on metal, right? Um, it's the same thing with shoulder cartilage and whatnot. And I always joke, you can't turn hamburger back into a cow either. So if we can stay ahead of the degeneration with some regeneration, I think that's going to be the future. And it's not as mechanical as I'm putting, you know, this in terms of a shoulder joint. Multiple sclerosis is a perfect example. Juvenile uh, uh, arthritis is an example. Um, uh, heart attacks. Um post-concussion syndrome, where we're actually dealing with the brain. Stem cells have been proven, especially when they're used uh, sooner rather than later, to be able to reverse these things oftentimes. And, and you know, just through the regenerative effect, um, reverse the degeneration. What's really cool about stem cells, if that's not cool enough already, is that in some cases, yes, we can make them even better by what we call pre-differentiating them. So, uh, let's say we have someone who uh, has already harvested his cells, uh, which will, I think also be uh, the wave of the future. We'll harvest them when we're your age, when they're nice and young and they're functioning their best. Mm-hmm. And there's ways where we call them, where we get rid of the senescent cells before we we uh, collect them, say, with apheresis, where we, we take them out of the blood once they've been stimulated from, from bone marrow. But uh, we can get them while they're younger and then... Um, let's not use heart attack for you. Um, uh, it will be kind. Young, but <laughs> yeah, no, uh, well, I, I didn't have to use the old example of say, you know, cartilage tissue, you wear out your shoulder joint, you mm-hmm. have some trauma there, whatever. We can take those cells, put them in a, essentially a Petri dish, mm-hmm. right. And put them next to cartilage cells. And that makes them differentiate into cartilage cells. Just the contact within the Petri dish with one another it makes it so a monkey could do this, right? They mm-hmm. know what to do, in other words, stem cells. That's what's fascinating about these to me anyway. So if someone else has their cells harvested uh, in advance, and I say this because that way they're more likely to, what we call in graft, to actually be the cell that goes where there's damage and become the new cell to replace the old cell. Um, uh, they have to be matched, okay? And that's the idea behind stem cell um, um uh, replacements. Okay. That's why you have to find a donor. If you're not going to use your own, that comes close enough. So your body doesn't reject it. Mm-hmm. So in this case, someone is harvested their cells. This, uh, uh, woman or man has a heart attack. Well, we can pre-differentiate those cells so that when we infuse them into the bloodstream, you know, through the, the, the cubital crease here, the, 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 uh, the vasculature, they don't go to all the areas in a 60 year old where there's other damage and go, Oh, we got work over here. We got work. Over-. No. We send them straight to the heart muscle because that's where we want them to go because we don't want to risk mm. the heart being permanently damaged. To mm-hmm. me, that's incredible, right, to, to be able to do that. And I think I'm not alone there. I mean, that's pretty fascinating, right, to be able to do that. So we have ways of specifically addressing organs or, again, prophylactically or not, you can give them intravenously and the stem cells know where to go. They find, they hone in on these uh, areas that are damaged and where there are these cells that aren't working properly anymore, get rid of them and replace them with the new ones and mm-hmm. become those cells. Definitely. And then more from a practical side, I'm also curious how uh, the process would look like. How long, for instance, would take for uh, a, a stem cell to, to do its work? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the damage versus the, the treatment is what we're talking about ultimately, but stem cells start working right away. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how much I go into it in my book. To be honest, I don't remember how much of it got left in or not or anyway. Uh, but, you know, I've seen some pretty fascinating things personally where I was walking down the street uh, the week before I had stem cell treatment, uh, my own cells. Uh, and then a week later, uh, well, while I was walking down the street, recovering from um, an A-level nine-hour um, spinal surgery, people actually stopped and asked if they could call me an ambulance. That's how poorly I apparently looked to the average person. And then a week later, after infusing stem cells, uh, I was able to run on a treadmill and do a, a, oh, wow. you know, a standard weight work. That's pretty quick. Now, the ability of stem cells to do whatever degree of work they're going to do um, is typically, I think, still about eight weeks where they're still uh, dividing. So one stem cell might give you several divisions where they make equally as good stem cells, okay, before they finally stop, okay, uh, dividing and just become a, a, a differentiated cell, whether it's a muscle cell or a bone cell or something like that. So uh, not that that's a loaded question given me, but it, it, it requires the answer, the long-winded answer I gave you. Uh, the, the potential to continue to do uh, its repair work, we'll call it regenerative work, is up to eight weeks. Um, and the dose is important, how many cells uh, in comparison to, okay, what are we trying to fix? For example, I do uh, talk about a case in the book of juvenile arthritis, uh, the female roughly tw mid-20s who, you know, is in a wheelchair and, and not doing very well at all. It's not a, it's, it's a painful disease. And then after an infusion of about, I believe it was three and a half billion cells, which sounds like a lot, but it's not, okay? Because you can you can infuse uh, a few hundred million each time uh, without risk. Uh, but then, you know, it's a classic picture for jumping up uh, from the sand beachside, you know, looking wonderful and healthy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, whereas someone who has that shoulder injury, for example, if it's not very extensive, we could uh, inject interarticularly say anywhere from 100 to 150 cell, million cells and you'll be good it's fascinating this is what i what i also wanted to bring up because in the book you also talk uh, talk about mu cells what are the benefits of mu cells compared to stem cells because they're quite new in a sense they're not researched as much and as i can remember properly you're also quite quite a fan of mu cells so could you maybe elaborate on that well, the beauty of mu cells is while there aren't as many of them, um, it looks like they're the ones that come out as a means of last resort. Uh, they're in uh, the, the surroundings of the organs, pretty much all over your body to a much fewer number uh, than uh, compared to uh, stem cells. But they work uh, um, as strongly or stronger to make the regenerative repairs necessary, but two very salient points uh, differentiate them from stem cells. One, they can never be teratogenic, meaning they can never uh, form cancerous cells. And people say, wait a minute, well, stem cells can cause cancer? Technically, yes, and uh, that's a potential negative, but it's usually um, in cases where, again, I mentioned how they, they, you can differentiate cells uh, by putting them next to one another, well, huh, this is going to sound contradictory because cancers are considered undifferentiated cells. They're replicating 
wildly out of control, we call mm -hmm. it. And, and putting stem cells next to them can oftentimes further cancer. There's a camp that actually believes in certain areas that stem cells can be used because stem cells are part of the immune system. Uh, uh, they can be used to counter cancer, but there's still a lot of debate about that. But uh, mu cells cannot form cancerous cells. Mu cells can very easily go anywhere in the body, including crossing the blood-brain barrier without a problem. So uh, those are two uh, reasons why I would consider they're, they're considered uh, a step above stem cells. They are harvested, uh, and I do include this in the book because I thought it was a fascinating story. Two people on different sides of the, the Pacific Ocean did the uh, similar studies. Dr. Uh, uh, Dezawa, I hope I got her name correct, uh, the Japanese researcher, left her cells there to go to a wine tasting party um and uh the experiment went awry she yep, put too much I of the wrong in there uh and then uh uh dr um um oh gosh i'm gonna be embarrassed here um he's got a difficult name to pronounce so i shouldn't yeah. be embarrassed but <laughs> over here at ucla um the argentine professor here um he left his in the centrifuge and said ah you know I'll clean it up in the morning. In both cases, they found that the stress that occurred to the the cells collected brought out these muse cells. And uh, arguably, again, they're more potent and, and mm -hmm. have fewer risks and are much more, uh, not much more, but you know, significantly uh, more um, uh, usable uh, for just about anything. In other words, uh, that um, you know, they're preferential. But as you mentioned. The Japanese have done most of the research. If you try and uh, look at what's been published so far, you'll find that the majority by far, I would say probably last time I looked, 95% is is written in Japanese. So it's, it's hard to get our arms around it. I do know that Mitsubishi has invested uh, considerable sums in her research uh, and they don't mess around. Uh, they're looking mm -hmm. for the latest and greatest. Uh, we haven't done that much research here in the United States arguably because of restrictions that until recently uh, have um, made it very difficult to do research with both stem cells and uh, mu cells promulgated by the, you know, the FDA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really fascinating topic and also a rather new topic for me. So I really enjoyed reading, reading about it in your book. And I think just as the telomere and DNA methylation tests, it's, a, it's an area that is still pretty much undiscovered by the by the public and i i'm just super excited to see where it's going to bring humanity because it has so much potency and so much potential for improving well-being i think it's amazing so i think it's a very very uh, interesting and, and fascinating area to work in as well and i think it will only only get better yeah i mean the, the word has to spread and again that's part of the reason i wrote the book replace some of the the standard ways of treatment for example we'll go back to your shoulder again or somebody's shoulder like yours where yeah. you know you've got something there from from an accidental uh fall or some sort of trauma and uh normally we would give you some cortisone right to reduce the inflammation very very effective mm -hmm. however i like it's a rubbing compound which can be used on the car to make the, the paint look shiny again. Well, the problem is rubbing compound essentially is taking off the top coat of paint. 
So in some ways, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul to expose the fresher paint, which sure looks better, but at a cost. And the, the same thing happens with cortisone injections. If we can get the cost of stem cells down to where it's equally as as practical as a cortisone shot, well, it's a no brainer. Yeah. We can yeah. see inflammation and not only avoid the, the the cost of some lost good tissue, but we're actually doing the opposite. We're making for more good tissue while we're reducing inflammation at the same time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, just something as simple as that mm-hmm. is is going to change the face of humanity, not to be dramatic, but you, you, you put it, uh, and I agree. There's so many other things that can happen too with the use of stem cells um, in, in terms of uh, creating new drugs um, because we can um, create situations where we can test the drugs using stem cells and organs created therefrom, uh, so we're not doing testing on live humans, right? I hope I put that in the book too. I think I did. Yeah. Um, not just the, the the very, I would call it very obvious to you and I that know about it now. Okay, so we're a step ahead in terms of the people that don't even know about this yet. But mm-hmm. then beyond the obvious, there are ways where, you, oh, wow, that's actually brilliant. We can use this. We can We can speed up the process of drug discovery in an almost uh, lo- at least logarithmic fashion mm-hmm. by being able to artificially create tissue, right? We take start with stem cells and differentiate them into heart tissue versus liver tissue and say, okay, how does this drug work on liver versus heart? And of course we would manipulate liver to say cause, uh, you know, maybe liver cancer or an infarct in muscular tissue, you know, uh, cardio, uh, cardio my- uh, myocytes. So I mean, that alone, is going to change the face of humanity mm-hmm. right there. Once yeah. we get it going to you know the level we need to. I would like to jump to another topic that might change the the course of humanity, which is a metformin, which you describe in that uh, part three of the book, which is anti-aging tools for leveling the longevity longevity playing field. So maybe you can uh, talk to what metformin actually is, and also how it might improve our our well-being or metabolism so for that matter. Well, metformin has been around for a long time. It's it's a derivative of, of a plant. Um, it is very, very cheap, uh, cheaply made, uh, but very effective at controlling uh, blood sugars, whether you're diabetic or not. One very interesting study showed that when they gave metformin to diabetics, they, let's see, they used a control group. I hope I get this right that didn't use anything. They used uh, a group that was not diabetic, I think, and took metformin. And then there was a group that was diabetic and took metformin. And the group that was diabetic that took metformin did better, I'm sorry, they did better than a control group that did not have diabetes, but wasn't mm-hmm. on metformin. But that, yeah. <laughs> so, so that was fascinating. I mean, just look at, hey, someone who's otherwise healthy doesn't do as well as someone who's not healthy, but we give them a drug for that ailment, in this case, type 2 diabetes, and they do better. And it got people thinking, well, maybe we have, you know, a new anti-aging drug right here because of the, and then, well, then we started studying the mechanisms by which that might occur Mm -hmm. uh, beyond just lowering blood sugar, which we know is good because, you know, uh, cancer loves sugar, um, inflammation and sugar are almost synonymous, right? Having too much sugar in the bloodstream leads to inflammation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a pretty good guess uh, alone right there as to why it might work. But we know that it also modulates 
uh, the formation of sugar in the liver. So you're less likely to make sugar there. Uh, you're less likely to absorb sugar in the digestive tract. Uh, uh, also through the activation of this mechanism, AMPK, uh, you're going to... For, for the ones that don't uh, know what AMPK is, could you maybe exp uh, elaborate on AMPK a little? It, it's, a, it's a mechanism inside the cell that, that modulates these, these different processes, right? So again, uh, by activating AMPK, uh, we tell the body, stop making more sugar, uh, and that occurs in, in the liver typically. Um, uh, you know, what's, uh, as a quick side note too, what's fascinating about this is that you're not making the pancreas make more insulin, okay? And you can't overdo the process of reducing blood sugar so that it's very, very safe. The only real contraindication is if you have chronic kidney disease, I think stage three or stage four, and you can, uh, then you have to be wary of lactic acidosis condition associated with that. But otherwise, uh, you, 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 uh, I mean, if you overdosed on, if you took too much, probably the worst thing that would happen to you is you would get, um, uh, an upset stomach. Um, but it won't lower your sugars. And that's the problem. If you, you know, with too much insulin, for example, if you're an insulin dependent diabetic, you give yourself too much insulin, you're dead, mm. right. Or in a coma. Uh, so, uh, very, very safe drug. And, uh, again, in activating AMPK, you make it so that the body uh, can improve your lipid profile. So it helps with, uh, those that might have extant coronary artery disease, because it, it uh, improves your, your lipid profile, your, your, your cholesterol numbers get better, your triglycerides tend to go down, um, all through this activation of AMPK. So again, you're making less sugar, you're absorbing less sugar, uh, you're releasing uh, fat for use in the bloodstream and not creating more fats, okay, these, these uh, lipid-based molecules. So that's how it works, and we believe it works with all the studies we've done. We've done testing where, um, you know, we can uh, take metformin and then block the ability to um, uh, increase AMPK and thereby show that um, that is the mechanism by which it works. I hope I'm making sense. So at least one of the mechanisms, I should say. Mm -hmm. And so AMPK is an important mechanism to consider there, and then there's something called uh, PPAR agonists, and there are different uh, uh, forms of PPAR. That seems to be another mechanism, and, and part of the reason why uh, berberine, which is another substance that acts very similarly to metformin, works not only to activate AMPK, but these PPAR agonists. Um, so, you know, we're still figuring out all the mechanisms by which it works, but the studies show, and there's a, there's a, a, a doctor... Niles Barzilay, an Israeli researcher who's doing the taking the lead on Mosis, is a study called TAME, targeting aging through metformin. I remembered one of the uh, acronyms. Good, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's trying to uh, you know get uh, one study done, which sort of uh, provides an all-in-one uh, study that you know from culling the research with these other studies done separately, metformin shows without a doubt that. Whether you have uh, a blood sugar issue like diabetes or not, this drug can help improve health span uh, through whatever mechanisms he's going to elucidate here that you know we think have previously been elucidated, uh, elucidated but not well enough, I guess. Mm -hmm. So to summarize very, very briefly and without uh, a lot of new ones, metformin is like a glucose disposal agent, which you can uh, take to reduce inflammation, 
which uh, also therefore uh, reduces the chance of certain diseases. Yes. And, and one thing I forgot to mention too is it upregulates the ability uh, through a mechanism called GLUT4 to increase the uh, absorption of sugar into muscles. And of course, that is a, it has a push me pull you effect because muscle is what we call a sugar sink. So the more muscle mass you have, the more you have a pull okay to this sink okay for sugar to go down mm -hmm. um uh, so that it pulls it out of the bloodstream um and, and increases your insulin sensitivity therefore mm -hmm. so it, it just you know it's not miraculous we, we you know we know how it works it's physiology but something so simple from a lilac uh plant uh doing such yeah. wonderful things it, it's one of those things where i mean we're hearing now something similar uh in effect with some of the new diabetes drugs, uh, the semaglutides, for example, uh, where we're seeing similar effects by uh, different mechanisms, but just the idea of a blood sugar lowering agent improving uh, your health by, by uh, I mean, even if you just ride a desk all day and bear, barely do anything less than uh, anything more than fog a mirror, you can drop 15% of your body weight in one year. That's, that's incredible. So we're, Finding out, uh, you know, different drugs that work better and their mechanisms of action and with incredible safety profiles, uh, again, giving us the ability to improve our health span uh, almost despite ourselves, you know. Mm -hmm. there, there's uh, two more topics that I would like to discuss. Well, one of them being the hormone replacement therapy, which you describe in, uh, in part four, which is living longer and better with hormones. I think that's a very interesting uh, topic, too. In the book, you mentioned that especially men around the age of 35 have a significant de decrease in testosterone production when you do a testosterone replacement therapy for instance can you maybe first of all uh, explain how you uh, what the causes of testosterone deficiencies are and how we can prevent those as well sure first of all i want to say it's not just uh, men it's women equally women, so yeah. and then it tends to be more insidious in onset with women sometimes it can be very precipitous where they'll go to bed on a saturday feeling fine and they wake up on a sunday and be miserable and then three months later they come in waving the white flags I, I don't know what's going on doc but you know i feel i don't feel good and and it's because uh you know well there can also always be uh, multiple reasons but that's when we identify the the low testosterone and and again it's men and women uh the causes we know really are just simply because we're on the planet for a, a certain amount of time. You mentioned, I think by definition, we call paraandropause and paramenopause for women age 35. That's when the hormones start to these, these steroid hormones, okay, from the word cholesterol, they start to go south on us. And some people notice it more so than others. I mean, there's personality that comes into play here, but the cause is simply um, a dysfunction in, in that. I mean, we can we can speculate all day long why the pituitary keeps functioning to produce thyroid in, in many, most people until the day we die. But for some reason, it doesn't send a message to the, to the gonads, uh, you know, the ovaries and females and the testicles and men to continue making testosterone. I, I don't know, but, you know, evolutionarily speaking, what, 300 years ago, we were dead by age 30 to 35. And if you look at uh, at least one of the main parts of evolution is to uh, procreate. If we haven't had a child to, to pass on our genes to by age 15, uh, arguably, what's the use of giving us the ability to do so afterwards, right? So somewhere around 30, 35, it just stops. 
uh, and maybe that'll change as we live longer. But anyway, it just happens these days. What 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 do we do about it? Um, there isn't anything to prevent it. Uh, there are things to stave off its eventual decline. Okay, and 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 much like the immune system, we talk about oh, how can you enhance your immune system? That's a tricky one. Uh, you really don't enhance the immune system unless we give it, uh, say, if you want to argue that giving oneself a certain type of vaccine can enhance your immunity to something. We're really just activating what we have. And so my point is, uh, what we can do is is maintain our immunity at its best and we can maintain our production of testosterone at its uh, uh, genetically predetermined best or we can reduce that. So what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, you can uh, improve the likelihood that you'll you'll get as much out of you were predestined to get by not doing things that are bad for you. Again, we go back to the, you know, the stressors, getting enough sleep, getting proper nutrition, getting proper exercise and avoiding other forms of stress is the best way to preserve testicular function for as long as you're going to have it. Uh, and of course, the opposite is true. I see men and women that come earlier than age 35, um, you know, uh, uh, way left of the curve, as it were, uh, because of obvious stressors. You know, you've got someone who immigrated to the United States, for example, and had uh, her first child, let's say, at age you know, 17, and she's already got five children at, at age 25. Well, at 28, not 35. She's got testosterone that's in the gutter. And, uh, and more importantly, just as importantly, I'd argue more, all the symptoms. And that goes into something else, which is you don't treat numbers, right? You treat people and their symptoms and signs. So mm -hmm. uh, you'll see a lot of patients that come in uh, with typical signs of, in this case, I'm talking about testosterone deficiency, where their energy is decreased, their libido's decreased, their just general sense of well-being and what the French call the joie de vivre, Mm -hmm. It's gone, decreased. Um, and, and testosterone is a natural antidepressant. And I can go on uh, another segue about, uh, you know, the studies we've done, which are fascinating to me. But uh, body composition is another one that oftentimes drives people in, um, despite having low testosterone and some of these other symptoms that can be, um, well, I, I say disguised, hidden. Uh, they just don't appear is really what I mean to say because of personality. For example, we've seen people that, no matter what age are bouncing off the walls with energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, they're getting their energy from another source, uh, not just testosterone. Now, not to say that if they had testosterone at, at, at uh, optimal levels, they might not have even more energy, right? But people can get through that because of their personality, their, their genes. But the one that brings people in uh, without fail is testosterone, as you, you probably guessed, you know, leverages the, the maintenance and production of muscle mass. So your ability to control and maintain your body composition, uh, muscle to fat ratio is very difficult to do without proper amounts of testosterone. That's what brings mm -hmm. anybody in. I mean, the energy, libido, sense of well-being, right? Uh, th those are personality-driven, arguably. But body composition, no. I mean, yes, personality-driven in that you have to get off the couch and get into the mm -hmm. gym or whatever. Mm -hmm. But otherwise... You could be, and I see this, I see professional athletes. They're the last ones to come see me, sometimes not until 55 or 60, saying, never waving the white flag. They're always tough. But to say, I can't do what I used to do. I pulled out all the tricks I learned by being a professional athlete and knowing my body. I can't do it anymore. What's wrong with me? Mm 
Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with you. It's very normal to happen, but uh, I, you could argue what's wrong with you is you're just you're applying your stubbornness to the wrong area. You should have come see me 30 years ago, you know. But uh, yeah, they're they're lacking in in the in the testosterone to leverage leverage. I choose the word carefully. All the good effects of testosterone on your body composition. After mm-hmm. all, I mean that's that's uh, muscle tissue. I would argue is synonymous with your metabolism. That's why we have to eat so much food. I joke with patients all the time. You don't have people calling you up and saying, hey, Rand, you missed it. We went to the library last night and studied Einstein for two hours and burned a thousand calories, right? No, No, you never hear that. Always somebody doing something to move their muscles to burn calories. So if you can get your testosterone levels back to an optimized level where they're supporting that, that muscle tissue or maybe bringing some back that you've lost over the last 10, 15 years from in part not having that leverage anymore from testosterone, then you can burn more calories while you're sleeping literally, or certainly you're burning more calories with say five more pounds of muscle on your frame because it's a metabolic liability. You're carrying it around doing the stuff you normally do, but it's going to cost you more energy. Mm-hmm. And think about that very simply. That's why you don't have marathon runners at 230 pounds, right? It would be a metabolic near impossibility to do it at a winning time anyway. So um, in terms of manipulating your body composition, it's, 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 it's make or break it. I mean, that, that's typically what the average person goes through. Uh, again, nothing wrong with that person. It happens with age. But when we reset the testosterone levels through replacement, uh, in, in the typical case where it's, it's a matter of what we call primary hypogonadism, where the ovaries of the testicles just aren't producing testosterone anymore, no matter what, mm-hmm. we restore that level of testosterone. And presuming that you're doing all the other right stuff, that leverage from the testosterone enables you to, to modulate your body composition back to the way you were when you were 20 again. Now, primary versus secondary, is, is a, it goes back to your question as to what we can do about it to prevent it and the causes. Secondary hypogonadism is different. It's when you have a, an issue with the pituitary not sending a signal to the gonads to produce testosterone. It's not a problem with the gonads themselves. They haven't worn out yet. But uh, you may have that 28-year-old, for example, uh, the, the female immigrant with five children working three jobs, whatever it might be. Uh, that's so much stress mm-hmm. that pituitary, for whatever reasons in our history, uh, for evolutionary purposes, arguably, says, hey, testosterone is not at the top of the list right now. Uh, you know, we're in fight or flight mode all the time. We're not going to send a signal there. The ovaries are working just fine with this female. Um, so all we have to do is find a way to stimulate the gonads to work again. And for at least a time period on average up till age 35, the, 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 uh, the, the natural process can be restored. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That's a different type of, of failure. And I think the word leverage is indeed very well chosen because I can Im- imagine that people might, they, they hear about uh, testosterone uh, replacement therapy and they already start linking it with injections and maybe um, uh, steroids as well. So there might be a little distancing going on there. But I think the way you explain it, to indeed leverage the the healthy parts of you that you want and that you need testosterone for, uh, the things you mentioned, whether it's uh, uh, libido, focus or motivation or uh, whatever, then testosterone therapy could be a solution. Yeah. You already, in the beginning, you mentioned that women also need testosterone. And I think that many people also 
let me phrase that diff differently. I think it's useful if we give a little context on that because obviously testosterone is an uh, estrogen uh, precursor as well. Maybe you could talk to the way that women need uh, need testosterone and how that exactly works. Yeah, it goes back to something you said earlier, which is just a reflection of the ignorance. I'm going to take testosterone and it's going to turn me into Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight or, uh, you know, without, without doing the work, which is, you know, again, that goes back mm -hmm. to that leverage thing or, or uh, that it's a, an anabolic steroid. You mentioned a steroid. Yeah, it's a steroid. Testosterone, estrogen, DHEA, progesterone, even vitamin D as in Delta is a steroid, meaning made from cholesterol. But oftentimes we confuse that with an anabolic steroid, which is a totally different molecule in the fact in the sense that it's not naturally occurring it's a molecule such as a, like a dihydrotestosterone molecule where you have an added ligand or a removed ligand so it acts very differently when it enters the cell to direct the cell to make more muscle right anabolic uh, uh growth um uh and then uh generally in keeping with, with the same other effects of testosterone which is with the libido sense of well-being etc but um, in terms of women, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's also misunderstandings because, I mean, even I think, uh, you know, my parents' generation thinks of testosterone is for men and estrogen is for women. You know, and nothing could be further from the truth. We both share the same hormones. We don't have one that the other didn't have. And I'm, I'm saying genders, just different levels and different ratios between the two. Okay. Uh, a, a female who doesn't have enough testosterone is most likely going to be deficient in the same things a male is, with you know, libido, energy, sense of well-being, uh, cognition, and, and a, the ability to, to modulate your, your body composition. So it, it's it's one and the same for, for men and women. Now the 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 the, the treatments are going to be different, really mainly in the in the amount of testosterone we would uh, replace, and and that just you know as a fun fact is roughly ten percent. Is, is the amount of testosterone a female would use compared compared to a male if we were using the same uh, types of testosterone replacement? Mm -hmm. Did I answer your, your original question or definitely sidetracked? No, definitely. Okay. And I, and I re really would like to thank you for bringing that nuance as well because I think it's such valuable information and as you already mentioned too, like uh, misunderstood information as well. But yeah, I just want to say, uh, to emphasize indeed, that this nuance is very, very important and I get also misunderstood often. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I, I mean, I, I think I really do have one of the best jobs in the world because uh, mm -hmm. it, it's very simple, uh, at least having done this for a long time, to, to be able to replace these missing hormones or make up for them if we're talking about uh, secondary hypogonadism and see the smiling faces. I mean, it takes about six weeks before the the effect kicks in, as we say, but then you know, to see someone, you know, barely getting themselves into my office, they have so little energy to come bouncing in my office with color in their cheeks, you know, 90 days later for a follow-up is phenomenal. I mean, and, you know, we doctors live for the, for the pat mm -hmm. on the back. It's, it's great you know, to have a medicine where it's almost uh, foolproof. I mean, mm -hmm. and arguably it is foolproof. We may have certain individuals that have different chemistry that we might have to fine tune it, but invariably we get to that point where the, where the patients are all happy. And it's, you know, again, I have a great job. Yeah. Uh, and again, men, men and women. Now women, obviously we're, we're typically dealing with, cause you mentioned, uh, you know, metabolites of testosterone being, uh, one of them is, is the estrogen. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we can deal with hot flashes, night sweats and vaginal dryness, 
that are associated with deficiencies in estrogen in females um, uh, by giving them replacement testosterone at an early enough age where the body still remembers, as it were, to create estrogen from testosterone so we can stave off some of those uh, menopausal uh, effects, not perimenopausal uh, effects, um, typically associated with uh, deficiencies in estrogen uh, mm-hmm. for a long time, if not, you know, completely skip having to use estrogen replacement. But if not, oftentimes we find that less estrogen is needed, uh, but you know, let's not sidestep estrogen. Estrogen is another very important hormone for both men and women. We need some uh, for uh, brain health, heart health, joint mm-hmm. health. Uh, male or female, the difference again is in the dosing and the titer in the system. So guys have a very low tolerance to uh, estrogen. Uh, If you have excess estrogen and you're a male, typically you'll hold water. You have a tendency to hold fat. Uh, You can get moody and irascible. And that's one that, you know, a lot of people associate uh, with anabolic steroids, right? That guy in the gym, typically who puts on 30 pounds in three months, Half of it looks like he's in his face. He's holding so much water. And they say, oh, he's, he's, he's on a roid rage or whatever. Uh, it's possible that, you know, he is or she is uh, because of a profile of a specific type of anabolic steroid. There are some that can make you more aggressive. But for the most part, and I'm definitely generalizing here, uh, that's not what they do. Mm-hmm. It's the uncontrolled estrogen that almost invariably causes that irritability and moodiness and that's what you're seeing in the gym along with the water weight gain and so um you know we have to modulate that very carefully in men and in women less so but if she's estrogenic to begin with maybe we we have to be careful uh about how uh, we dose it and maybe uh, affecting the conversion from testosterone to excess estrogen but uh testosterone generally speaking is the feel-good hormone if a male or a female has their testosterone optimized they're not interested in getting into a spat about anything. I mean, they're, they're, they're happy go lucky. You know, if it's a, by another guy in front of his girlfriend or something like that, he's more likely to say, you know what? Not today, man. It's okay. You can, you can, you can, you can show off. I'm not going to, you know, you can call me a name. I'm not going to react. <laughs> and, and for, you know, you know, the same thing, uh, you know, much less will be uh, available as it were to set you off. Now, the exception, you know, someone will mention, um, and I won't mention names. That's, that would be in play, but let's say, uh, particular well-known professional athlete that they think of as being, you know, maybe a little bit aggressive or a jerk or something like that. Typically, you're not going to see someone uh, be a jerk unless they were one already if they start testosterone therapy. In Mm -hmm. other words, testosterone, again, I'm going to use the word leverage, will leverage who you are and typically make you a little bit nicer and easier to get along with. Uh, but if you're naturally aggressive, you know, your whole life, and then you kind of, uh, are a little more tame with age, um, and then you get back on testosterone and you turn aggressive, well, it's not because of the testosterone. That's who you are. And we gave you more energy to be who you are again. A nice guy to a jerk or a nice gal to a jerk are the ones that aren't governing their estrogen typically. And that's the problem. It's not the testosterone. It's Mm -hmm. it's not being done properly. Hey, I would like to uh, jump to the last part of your book, which is uh, part five, Cheating Death with Technology, Analytics and Action, which I found an interesting uh, part to read in particular because it is it gives some, some future perspective or where we're going with technology within the, the health industry, so to speak. You, uh, you write about different wearables, 
I saw you're also wearing a, an aura ring, uh, which is obviously a, a great uh, a, a great tool to measure sleep uh, and heart rate variability and um, other health indicators. You also uh, elaborate a little on the role of uh, artificial intelligence and the, uh, the role it can play on detecting cancer at early stages, for instance. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, people reading uh, this chapter if they're fond of, uh, of wearables like I am. Uh, I'm a bit of a data, data geek in that sense. I have an interesting question for you, which is um, where you see the, the market of wearables um, go in, let's say, five to ten years when it comes to also detecting more and more health indicators at, uh, at early stages. The, the ultimate would be like the old uh, Star Trek show where, you know, uh, Bones, the doctor would come out and he had the gadget that would be able to pick up on all the, the, the relevant variables. We don't have that yet. But when we do, that's going to change the face of humanity like no other. And this is a chapter, by the way, that I think is woefully outdated already because we're making so many advances so quickly. I read in the paper every probably literally three or four days, a new advancement that uses AI and, and uh, monitoring uh, you know, to get these data points to advance the science. And it's fascinating to me. I, I joke, but I'm serious. If, if I could talk my wife into it, uh, you know, being frozen and being awakened, you know, 200 years hence, I would do it because mm -hmm. just to satisfy my curiosity, <laughs> how far we're going to advance this because the combination of AI and the, the wearables, we'll call them, the technology of picking up the data is just, you know, the, 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 the potential is infinite, really. I mean, it's just amazing to me. Um, the, the, the biggest problem I would argue right now is that the, the wearables are not as precise and therefore not as accurate as we would like them to be. So we go back to the old uh, concept of garbage in, garbage out. You can only manipulate the data to get to a certain point. I mean, if you're off by a little bit, you know, here, well, by the time you get into, you know, here, you know, you can be way off. So, you know, while I do appreciate that we're, I'm wearing it myself and I'm not knocking them, it, it still is not the same thing as an, you know, an EEG. Um, uh, you know, some, they've gotten a lot better, uh, the wearables, but I think that's our biggest sticking point right now. And then integrating them is also an issue. So one of the things I've developed is I call the death clock app, but it's more than just using something to measure your biological age. It's going to have the, it does have the ability to integrate uh, the different wearable data, because I don't know if you've noticed uh, or if you use it, but you know, I have a, for example, this wear a ring. I have my iWatch. I have uh, a, a Wahoo, um, uh, wristband for uh, measuring my heart rate and I have a, a Wahoo uh, kicker for uh, they call a smart trainer for my bicycle mm -hmm. integrating this data is a barrier for most people because they're going to throw up their hands and go oh my goodness and you know maybe a 20 and 30 year old and I'm being only partly facetious when I say you know they're they're used to all these apps and it's easy but for someone my age it's like come on man really I've got to jump from my trainer road app to my uh, Apple Health app, to my uh, Training Peaks app, to my Wahoo app, to it's get all this data in place where I can say, okay, here was my day, okay, so I can look at it in one place. And as a physician, I'm dying to take a patient like you who loves wearables and data points. Remember, I, 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 remember, I, I have to uh, 
apologize and say, don't hold it against me. But I, I was a CPA before I was a doctor. So you can imagine, I, you know, I love the data points, right? I love manipulating them and seeing patterns, and that sort of thing. Well, I've got to get you, the patient, into the wearing those wearables. And then I have to be able to collect that data. Otherwise, it's useless to me anyway to be able to help you. So that, I think, uh, long-windedly, is, is one of the other barriers is we don't have the software to match the, 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 data, um, mm -hmm. uh, the data grabbers, the wearables. Uh, but with AI, I think once we get those two things in place, the sky's the limit. We're going to have so much available data that'll help us and monitor it in real time, which is also important to so many things. Uh, we have, um, there's a hospital in the Caymans that uses uh, Apple technology to monitor, um, uh, we have um, indwelling uh, monitors, like a sh uh, a Schwann's, uh, Schwann Gans, I get the name wrong, uh, monitor uh, in real time. Every five seconds it picks up a reading. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't see that in hospitals here to the same level I see there. So part of it also, my point is uh, not to bag on the U.S. system. I didn't mean to do that. But uh, sharing the technology is also a problem. Uh, there's the capitalist part of it, which is great, which drives things. Uh, I'm definitely a capitalist and, and I think it motivates a lot of people. But then getting that data from a science standpoint, right, integrated, you know, hey, no one wants to give anything away for, for free of charge, but that's also a barrier in some senses to it. And there's there's people right now out there that are trying to overcome that with the money necessary. For example, UCLA has gotten together with uh, Milken. This is right uh, near me here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gary uh, Michelson and his foundation to, to come up with, I think, one and a half billion dollars to have a center like this where everyone comes together and shares information uh, the money's there. And I think that's going to advance things too. Uh, I know this part of what you're, you're talking about is a little mm -hmm. bit more esoteric and much more practical, but I'm sharing with you uh, where I think this is going. I think in that chapter, there's a lot less um, uh, detailed information, which I argue has already changed since it, you know, since before it's even been published, right? Because that's how far we're advancing. But the concept is what I want to get across that, you know, like Ray Kurzweil said, uh, what does he say? Uh, live, uh, is he live longer to live even longer or something like that? You know, stay in the game. Don't don't lose hope and faith because we have so many of these advancements right around the corner that are building upon each other. That's going to make it even easier for us to control our health span. That's that's the message I want to get across for sure. And it's a, it's a beautiful message. And uh, I'm also super super excited to see where we stand, even within two years. Because as you as you said, is going incredibly fast. The space is unheard of um the developments in technology are um, becoming better and better and we're only in the beginning stages of this whole trend right of the of the of the biohacking market as i'm going to call it now but there's much more to it so again i really enjoyed reading that uh, chapter of the book and for the listeners uh, um, and the, the data geeks under us i can only recommend again take a look because you will be fascinated about uh about what's written there and maybe uh an update from the book in let's say five years we have a whole new ecosystem of even newer technologies which makes me even more excited so uh i would really uh, want to thank you for that chapter and that also concludes the 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 parts of the the parts of the book we just we discussed we discussed from the telomeres to dna methylation i, I took notes while we were talking metformin 
uh, hormone replacement therapy, stem cell therapy. We covered so much in let's say one hour and, and 25 minutes. It's been a it's been an absolute blast to have you on the show, Dr. McLean. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I would like to thank you for your time to share everything uh, with me and also the audience and to give us the chance to 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 learn from you. I, it's, it's, it's only a joy to be able to speak to you. So thank you very much for uh, for that. Well, really, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. I, I hope it comes across. I have, I have a great time talking about this stuff and I, and I hope it rubs off because really, Again, the purpose of the book is to spread the words so that people understand there are so many things we can do to help ourselves. And uh, it's just a matter of you know calling up the, the right information and, and finding the right sources and then implementing it and, and you'll get the benefits. So yeah, I hope this, uh, this falls on many, many years and uh, we'll, we'll continue to spread the word. And, and again, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. So for the listeners, the new book of Dr. Rand McLean, Cheating Death, The New Science of Living Longer and Better will be available on March 7th. I will put uh, different links in the, in the show notes. You can um, look everything up yourselves. Many thanks for listening. Again, Dr. McLean, many thanks for coming on the show and I'm looking forward to the next episode.